Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan, our new youth-led podcast where we're putting together a 10-step plan to rescue our generation's future from the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. And this week, we're talking to Simon Sharp, who is the Director of Economics for the Climate Champions team and played a leading role in COP26, heading up global campaigns on behalf of the UK presidency. But in the last year, he's taken the climate world a bit by storm with his book, Five Times Faster. It's all about how we need to rethink the way that we do science, economics and diplomacy to dramatically accelerate climate action. I first heard about Simon's ideas at a talk he gave in Cambridge a little while ago, and it absolutely blew my mind. I came out of it with so many ideas and so many questions. And so it was really exciting to be able to have some of his time to talk through some of those. Here's the conversation, and hopefully you'll come away with your mind similarly blown. What we do to open every episode is we we have a bit of a silly question to get things started. And the one that it came to both Bella and I independently, it must have been like the, the obvious one to go for, is if there's one thing that you could do in your life five times faster, what would it be? Well, there, there were probably lots of things, but one I thought of, is reading. I'm actually a really slow reader. I love books, but I'm a slow reader. And it takes me a long time to get through them. And that's even worse when you put it together with the fact that nowadays I'm so tired after work, if I try and read something, I literally fall asleep. It takes me about 20 minutes, and then I fall asleep. And I can't get through very much in 20 minutes. So if I could read five times faster, that would be extremely helpful. Help with terms and conditions too, wouldn't it, especially? True. Do you really read the terms and conditions? I don't, but I might start if I could read five times faster. It might be worth it. What about you, Bella? Well, I also thought of reading, but based on the fact that that's yours at the time it took me to come up with that, I'm going to change it to thinking. But then so much of what we do operates in communities and with different people that I don't know if you were thinking five times faster, if it would be that useful because you might just be operating in an isolated space if people wouldn't be able to keep up with that pace of thought. What about you, James? Those both sound genuinely quite useful. I was thinking, like in my life, I was thinking of, you know, sleep is one. Then I thought, actually, I quite like sleeping. I don't know if I want to get that over and done with faster. So maybe, and this sounds very like self-help coach, I know, but procrastination. I don't know if I could do that just by like putting the the cat videos on on two times speed. (laughs) (laughs) I think you might just watch double the cat videos if you do that. Maybe. That might end up happening. But um. The five times faster in your book, Simon, what does that actually refer to? What's the title about? It refers to how quickly we get the fossils out of the global economy. Specifically, it refers to emissions of greenhouse gases per unit global GDP. And surprisingly, on that measure, we are decarbonizing the global economy. That That is coming down. It's just coming down really slowly. And if we want to limit global warming to below one and a half degrees, as we've said we do in international agreements, that means we have to decarbonize the global economy roughly five times faster this decade than we did over the last two decades. And the reason I I take that as a starting point for the book is not to make the argument that we need that acceleration, but to talk about how, because the fact that we need it is just a simple point of maths. The question of how on earth could we go that much faster is a really interesting question. And I'm arguing that we don't stand any chance of achieving that if we keep on doing things 
the way that we've been doing them. And I don't just mean if we keep on burning fossils like we've always been burning fossils. I mean, if our approach to solving the problem doesn't change, then we don't have a chance. Actually, I've got your book right here. The cover art is also really pretty, actually. It talks about three particular subtopics, doesn't it, Simon, of the pipelines uh, of the world that we need to fix. Some of the invisible workings that most people don't often see and think about. And those are in science, economics and diplomacy. That's how you separate the book into chapters. In your book, you say that you don't really agree with the current economic paradigm that most governments operate from when they're coming up with policies. And I think that's that's a really important point to make. And I was wondering if you could explain what that current paradigm is and why you think it's flawed. The paradigm is, is not about what we want. It's about how we understand the economy, what we think it is, how we think it works. And the dominant economic paradigm for the last 150 years has been to imagine the economy as a system in equilibrium. And, and I looked this up in my Oxford Dictionary of Economics, and it tells me equilibrium is a situation where nobody has any reason to change their actions. If you're a business, you never really encounter a situation where you've got no reason to change your actions. Everything is changing around you. Your technology is changing. Your competitors are changing. Market conditions are changing. You've always got a reason to change your actions. And the more you think about it, the more you think at, at every level, no matter what kind of economic actor you are, that tends to be true. So why do we model it as a system in equilibrium? Well, it turns out really that idea was invented in the 1870s when some economists thought that economics needed to be more like a science. And to make it more like a science, they thought they needed to describe it in terms of maths. And to make the maths equations solvable, they had to come up with a lot of assumptions. First of all, the assumption that the economy is a system in equilibrium. And none of that in any way was based on observing how the economy really works. It was all driven first by making the equations solvable and then deducing everything from those original assumptions. And I'm not suggesting that all of the work of the great field of economics now is constrained to sort of unrealistic assumptions and so on. But we have been in that paradigm for so long that we barely recognize it. And what it means is that we have far less of the kind of economics we need which is the understanding of processes of change in the economy, of innovation, of growth, of structural change, the dynamics that either accelerate change or that hold you back. We desperately need that kind of analysis to make the transition to a low-carbon economy. And that's what we, we really don't have. And that's exactly why the models that the central banks use and the finance ministries use never predicted a global financial crisis. It wasn't that they failed to predict it. They were designed in a way that excluded the possibility of a financial crisis. And it's just the same when we think about the low carbon transition, we have to bring it about. And models that exclude that possibility are absolutely no help at all to us in, in imagining how to do it. It's not just mathematical models, it's the entire paradigm, the theory, the models, the decision-making frameworks, and the beliefs in people's minds about if we do a certain thing, what will the economic outcomes of that be? You're speaking a lot about mental models. And I'm wondering how much do you think we're lacking the ability to really tap into human psychology? Because right now we're talking about policy. There's a massive 
space for tapping into human psychology and whether that's one of the avenues to going five times faster? Uh, That's an interesting question. There's a couple of things to say about that. One is, yes, definitely, we could harness the understanding of psychology more, both in policy and in activism. You know, understand how people are likely to react to things. You're more likely to be able to persuade them and encourage them to act in the ways that you want. But the other thing I want to say is there is a a danger in overemphasizing the need for individual actions of a certain kind. We often hear about carbon footprints and how we should try and reduce those. We don't so often hear that the concept of a carbon footprint was most aggressively popularized by an oil company. Why on earth would they do that? Well, actually, it follows in a long tradition of companies doing that sort of thing in in many different sectors over more than a century. Another example is car companies in the early days of motoring that were aggressively promoting sort of road safety in terms of people being careful about when they cross the road at the same time as lobbying governments against having any speed limits. The whole point of that tactic is you put the onus on the individual to change their behavior and you distract attention from what needs to happen at the systemic level. I think the same thing very much has been happening on climate change. So individual behavior is important, but changing the system is far more important. There's a way I like of relating these two things, which this was described to me by Tim Lenton. And he said that the biggest ships, the enormous container ships, they not only have a rudder, but they also have a rudder on the end of the rudder, a micro rudder. And the micro rudder helps the big rudder steer. And then the big rudder steers the ship. And it's a bit similar that if your big rudder is the big regulatory changes that change the direction of development in the economy, then your micro rudder on the end of that is the behavioral aspects that help people engage with them in the right kind of way, help, help them be successfully implemented. Fantastic. One of our previous guests actually was Luisa Neubauer, who's a German climate activist, and she laid out things in quite a similar way to you when it comes to um, fossil fuels and talking about individual action and the role of policy and how there's such inertia in the system because of these these balancing feedbacks that exist for incumbent technologies and for, for the fossil fuel economy. In your book, you talk about those feedbacks that maintain the status quo that we have right now, and also those feedbacks which have the potential to accelerate action. It would be really great for you to tell our listeners about what some of those feedbacks are and and how we might influence them. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really an amazing thing when you think about the pace of technological progress. You know, the the most visible kind that we all see is, is the progress in computing famously followed Moore's law in terms of doubling the the capacity of a chip every 18 months or so. And why does that happen? Well, Brian Arthur was, was the person who wrote about this and I think described it in these terms originally. But you get that exponential growth and improvement in new technology because of a whole set of reinforcing feedbacks that are working together. And so... One of those is the process of learning by doing. The more you make something, the better you get at making it. Another one is economies of scale. The more of it you make, the cheaper it gets to make it. Another one is the emergence of 
complementary technologies. The more that something gets used, the more people invent other technologies that make that first thing more useful. And all of these come together in a sort of super feedback where you have increasing the demand for the new solution, more people buying it. As a result of that, more investment in it. The investment leads to more innovation. The thing gets better and there's increasing demand for it. And so it goes on round and round in the circle. And that's exactly what we see happening with many of the clean technologies, solar power, wind, onshore and offshore, batteries, electric vehicles, hydrogen electrolyzers. They're all showing this kind of progress. So when you look at their rates of deployment on a graph, it's not a straight line. It's an upward curve getting faster and faster. So that's hugely powerful. On the other side, as you said, there are also balancing feedbacks that exist in the economy to do with incumbent system lock-in. And you can think of that as the harder you push for change, the harder some of those systems will push back against you. But you can also use policy to either strengthen some of the feedbacks that are already there, that are helpful, that are changing things in your direction, or even create new feedbacks within the policy itself. I think a great one is Japan's energy efficiency policy. They have a policy called Top Runner, where within a given product sector, the energy efficiency standards are constantly revised upwards to meet whatever is the best that any given company in that sector achieved. The best gets out in front, and then suddenly that's the new standard. Everybody has to meet it. And again, somebody goes further, and again, the regulation levels up. That's a great policy-created reinforcing feedback. So those are the dynamics that we have to play with. And I think it is just as relevant to activism as to policy. One of the most prominent movements we see at the moment is Just Stop Oil. And it's very much focused on constraining the supply of fossil fuels, trying to persuade people to keep them in the ground. For me, that's an example of where you're pushing on a weak point of leverage, because the people who own those fossil fuels want to dig them out and sell them. You're up against the balancing feedback. The harder you push, the more strongly they'll push back. And look at the pushback. We see it. We see all the all the media coming out defending the fossil fuel industry. The leaders of both our main political parties have had to walk back and water down their climate pledges. That's the power of the balancing feedback. Whereas imagine what you're doing as an activist group is focused on the solutions and enabling their spread more widely. Imagine if what you're saying is in the UK, let's get rid of the planning restrictions that make it impossible to install a new onshore wind farm. And at the same time, let's let's lobby for a policy that gives local communities part of the benefits from that new onshore wind farm. If you do that, you're playing with the positive feedbacks, the reinforcing feedbacks. You manage to get some of that onshore wind deployed, the electricity prices will come down, you'll contribute to the technology progress, you'll build support in the community because they're taking a stake in it. All of that helps you move further, move faster. All of the dynamics of that system are on your side. This way of thinking about the feedbacks is a good way of deciding where to focus our efforts. You suggested that only a small number are needed to trigger these reinforcing feedback loops. Do you think it sort of exempts the vast majority of people from getting involved? And which, I guess, demographic or stakeholders do you think are most important for triggering that? 
So if people want to help, then absolutely everybody has a role. Moore's law didn't happen by itself. It happened because lots of people were constantly working away at it, solving different problems day by day. And it's the same with the clean technologies and climate change. When you look at the exponential growth of solar in the world, it's happening because all kinds of people are making it happen. Activists, innovators, business people, policy people, lawyers, journalists. So once when I was trying to figure out what to do with myself and asking somebody much older than me for careers advice, then I asked this question, you know, which point in the system has the most leverage? Where's the best place to work if you really want to bring about change? And he said, well, don't think about it that way. Every single place in the system can exercise leverage. Think about it in terms of, of all those different points in the system. Which one could you operate well? Which one are you suited to based on what you're good at and what you like doing? So I find that a helpful way to think about it. And as, as each of us individually thinks about our leverage, we can think about our professional positions, our social connections, our democratic rights, the organizations that we're part of. Any, any of those could give us a route to helpful influence over the problem. Absolutely. I think that's really helpful for a lot of our listeners who I expect will be in the same position as me and looking at jobs and looking to think about where we can have the most leverage. Another thing that you, that you described in the book that I think is really interesting is the fact that as with natural systems and tipping points in the climate system, there are also tipping points present in the economy whereby you know these feedback loops cause self-sustaining change. Yeah, and I find this a helpful concept. I, I tend to imagine it visually as a bit like trying to push a, a ball over a hill. To begin with, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be an uphill battle. But it doesn't get harder and harder forever. There is a point where it begins to get easier. And there is a tipping point, which is where with a small push, you get a disproportionately large effect. And after that, as, as you say, it begins to gather its own momentum. And just as climate scientists will tell you, there's not just one tipping point on the way to a dangerous climate. There are many at all kinds of different scales, in the physical climate, in the ecosystems, everywhere. I think the same is true of the economy, many tipping points from the micro to the macro level. But the easiest kind that we can imagine is the point where some zero emission technology or practice or solution begins to outcompete the fossil fuel one. It begins, let's imagine that it has comparable performance and it becomes cheaper instead of more expensive. And there's a great example of, of where policy made that happen sooner than it would have done otherwise. In the, in the road transport transition to electric vehicles, Norway for a long time has been far ahead of any other country. And it, it, it had lots of policies, of course. You always need lots of policies. It's never just one. But the one thing it did that was really outstanding was use a combination of subsidies for electric vehicles and taxes on petrol cars to mean that when you're a comparable electric vehicle would be cheaper to buy than a petrol car, not just cheaper over its lifetime, actually cheaper upfront to buy. And if you look at how did that compare to the subsidies offered in other European countries? Well, none of them crossed that cost parity barrier a few years ago. And what was the effect in terms of sales? Well, in Norway, at, at the time when I studied this, 
electric vehicles were about 60% of car sales uh, in Norway compared to about 3% globally. So Norway, it was 20 times the global average. Absolutely huge effect. And when you put all that data on a graph, you just see what looks very much like a nonlinear response to policy crossing that threshold. It looks like they helped to pass a tipping point in consumer preference. And so that kind of thing is helpful to aim for. If we understand that we're aiming for the point where the new solution becomes better than the old, that gives us a target. It might sound like a really obvious thing, but it's surprisingly rare that you have policies that were designed specifically to achieve this. You know, often you hear economists recommending that we should have the same carbon price across the whole economy because that spreads the load most evenly. But I'm saying we don't want to spread the load evenly. Dynamically speaking, that's hopelessly inefficient. We want to bring about structural change, and that means focusing the pressure for change in the right way. Think about each sector separately. Each one needs a different level of subsidy, carbon price, or regulation to help it cross its own tipping point, where the dynamics start helping you accelerate instead of holding you back. So I think that's that's a much better way for us to think about it. That's a fascinating example. I'm actually um going to visit Norway, so I'll I'll keep an eye peeled for all the all the electric cars. Another thing that we we wanted to speak about that we are really interested in actually personally, Bella and I, we were both at COP26 in an activism capacity. And we know that that you were there too, and you were leading the charge on a lot of campaigns behind the scenes. But one thing that we both heard a lot about when we were there from a lot of the activists on the outside was this whole narrative of, of the COP system being broken, that it was failing us, that it wasn't really working. And I think the classic response to that is, yes, it's it's not brilliant, but it's the best system that we have available to us. I know this is something that you've got strong opinions on. What do you think are the problems with international climate diplomacy in its current form? And do you think there is a better way? Yeah, and I, I like the way you, you introduced this, and, and I do have strong feelings on it, because so often people say these kind of things, you know, this is the only game in town. I, I think that's horrendously complacent. If something's not working, we should investigate it closely. We should subject it to critical challenge. And when we do that, if we find out that the fact it's not working is not just a random accident, but it's due to it being designed and implemented in the wrong way, then we should change it. And I do think that climate change diplomacy is set up in a way that makes it extremely difficult to bring about the kind of structural change in the global economy that we need. And I'll say why. I, th I think there are three interacting reasons. One is that it's drawn the scope of the problem too widely. We sit around, as we have done for 30 years, talking about economy-wide emissions. And of course, we also talk about adaptation and money and all, all kinds of other things. That's an incredibly wide scope for a problem. And I think diplomacy is only useful when it draws the scope more narrowly. If you look at diplomacy around peace and security, you will see straight away countries are not sitting around trying to negotiate a legally binding agreement for world peace. They did it once. They came up with the Kellogg-Briand Pact agreed in 1928, and they said, we'll never go to war again. I think we've learned that lesson, so we don't try and do it that way anymore. 
successful peace agreements are specific to the places, the actors, the interests that they're concerned. That way it can work. So first thing is bring the scope down. And for the problem of global emissions, the useful scope is the scope of one emitting sector, the power sector, road transport, shipping, steel, aviation, agriculture, so on. Each of those is very different from the others, has different problems, different solutions, different kinds of international connections, and different countries that matter or that are most able to change the system globally. That relates to the second point, which is participation. Whenever you try and have a, an agreement among a, a number of actors, it's likely that your agreement reflects the lowest common denominator. The more people you're trying to agree with, the lower that lowest common denominator is. If you have all countries in the world around the table trying to agree something, your lowest common denominator is as low as it can be. The, the third thing is our diplomacy focuses so much on targets. You constantly hear about countries' targets. What are they doing by 2030? When are they doing net zero, 2050, 2060, whatever? Most countries' targets for emissions still point up this decade, not down. And that just reflects how little governments are able to commit to when it concerns the future. Uncertainty. They don't know what they can achieve. Whereas what happens when we actually do the right things, where well, we find progress is much faster than we expected. Globally, solar deployments 10 times what we thought it would be 15 years earlier. Actions activate those reinforcing feedbacks. So we should be focusing on actions more than targets. Can we imagine what the institutions and the processes of diplomacy would look like if they were based around small groups, sector-specific, focused on actions instead of targets? Well, yes, absolutely we can. And in many ways, that would be much more attractive to countries because it's not about putting pressure on them. It's more about helping them take the practical steps that they need to take and making the clean technologies more available to them, less costly and less difficult to move to. So I, I really think that's a very necessary change in diplomacy. Right now, it feels slightly like, I mean, you, you were talking about big actors who have lots of financial power and power in general. We're relying on their kindness and empathy to help perhaps developing countries. Is there any other mechanism that we can rely on? Well, I, I think diplomacy is all about trying to align interests with what you're trying to achieve. Let's look at China and the road transport transition. What interest does China have at play there? Well, of course, one is the Chinese government wants Chinese people to be able to buy cars and get themselves around. And it would prefer it if they could do that more cheaply. Second is China would like to reduce its import dependence on oil. It imports most of its oil. That's expensive. And it's a vulnerability. And of course, road transport is the biggest consumer of oil. Third thing is China and many Chinese industries would like it if they had a bigger share of the global car market. Historically, they haven't done. But China's got a better opportunity to take a big share of that market in a new technology, electric vehicles, than it would have if we stuck with the incumbent technology that the Germans and the Japanese and the Americans have got really good at making for decades. So. China has three strong interests in that transition. None of them are to do with climate change. They're also nothing to do with altruism or, or trying to help other countries. 
The great thing is if we harness those interests, then there's a huge amount of investment that goes into those solutions in China, and that does push them down the cost curve. That makes them cheaper for everybody else. Whether China wants to help other countries or not, it is helping the other countries. That's really interesting to me, and it's it's got me thinking. We're living through interesting times when it comes to um, the the election of, of political leaders around the world at the moment, and seeing a lot of countries like Brazil and the US are kind of flip flopping from um, very very climate ambitious governments or relatively climate ambitious governments to those which either pursue outright denial or um, are really really against transitioning at the pace necessary. I wonder, do you think that this other kind of diplomacy that you're you're thinking about, which relies less on long-term emissions targets, which are, you know, the focus of a lot of anger <laughs> from these politicians and moving towards these kind of smaller, more dynamic, shorter-term coalitions that are focusing on, on quick policy wins in the near term. Do you think, is that less vulnerable to who happens to be in power at any particular time and to that kind of flip-flopping from one administration to the next? Ah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is, yes, it is less vulnerable because changing the economy is path dependent. Whatever you do now changes the options for what comes next. And a great illustration of that is how in America, coal power plants closed at a faster rate under President Trump than they did under President Obama, despite the two of them having completely opposite policies on climate change. And it was because so much progress had been made in growing renewables that by the time Trump was in power, there were strongly Republican-leaning states that are still growing their renewable generating capacity really fast because there are strong business interests in favor of that in those states and strong consumer interests too. And it's just not easy to turn that back. So I do think that kind of practical approach focused on action has more staying power. But of course, we shouldn't aim for it to be short term. We should aim for it to be sustained because real effective diplomacy needs trust. It takes time to build. It gets stronger as it goes along. So I think it's not enough to have these kind of side events and, and treat these initiatives as, as just a sideshow. Practical cooperation is the meat of it. It's the guts of climate diplomacy. It's what should be the center of attention. And we should be getting really serious about this in each of the emitting sectors and making sure those efforts are sustained over time. And of course, in any given group, if one country elects a crazy leader and they depart from it, it's the job of the rest of the country is to kick them out and carry on. I think I'm aware we have just over five minutes left, and I really want to end in these last few minutes kind of turning the complete focus forward looking. Could we on a slightly more granular level talk about how do we set about making the changes in the pipe work that you're calling for? Exactly what would it look like? And right now, if you were saying to the audience, what should we be calling for to activists out on the street? What should the demands be? What would you say? Well, it's in a way difficult to answer that all at once. But let me try. I think in terms of the economics, the thing that I would say government should do is fund the work of researchers that understands the economy as a dynamic system, not as a static one. If it puts the funding in, it can very quickly get more of those kind of models, more of that kind of useful analysis that helps show them where the leverage points are. 
for for activists, that's probably not a, a very useful statement. What what does it mean activists should do? I just say in really plain terms, focus on the solutions, focus on helping them grow, because that's where all the feedbacks will will give you extra power. That is a a more rewarding focus for your efforts than chasing after the oil firms and trying to tell them to do something other than digging up oil and selling it. On the diplomacy, then very specifically, I think we need the right group in each of the emitting sectors. You need a small group of influential countries to come together and talk about the next steps. Activists can go out and call for that. Don't turn up at COP and just say, raise ambition, raise ambition, raise ambition. Turn up at COP and say, come on, governments, where's your serious cooperation on the global steel industry? Where is the US, China, EU, India sitting in a room together agreeing what you're going to do? When are you going to agree serious use of public procurement to create that market? And thereafter, all of the other policy measures that you'll need to spread it through, through the sector. That's the kind of pressure we need, pressure in the right places to get stuff done. Fantastic. I know we've inadvertently just asked you a question where you've answered a lot of this already, but this last question, which is one that we ask all our guests, which is if there's one thing that you could ask of governments, of businesses, and of civil society, what would it be? Well, I'll answer that in a in an overarching way, which is think less about your footprint and more about your point of leverage. And I, I think that's true at every level. We we talked about this earlier at the personal level. You know, think about your how do you use your your position in society, your your professional knowledge, whatever skills you have. What can you do better than most other people to bring about system change? It's true at the level of a business. You can think about what does your business do that's unique? Is it creating some kind of new solution? Or is it the way you can use your buying power to create a market for something else? And it's even true at the level of countries. You think of a country like Morocco, it did the whole world a service by demonstrating concentrated solar power on a large scale before anyone else really had done. Germany crazily had over half the world's solar power despite being a gloomy country at one point about 20 years ago. Each country, if it thinks not just what do we do within our own territory, but where is our best ability to change something at the global level, then it gets us into a much more exciting and constructive space. So I think at all of those levels, think less about the footprint, more about the point of leverage. Thanks, Simon. I know I'm going to go away and have breathless nights over what my point of leverage is. Uh, don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm still having that myself. I'm very aware we're, we're making you late for your meeting. So we'll let, let you go now, Simon. But thanks so much again for coming on. It's been fascinating. Thanks, James, and thanks, Bella. Great talking to you both. Thanks, Simon. So, Bella, I thought that was an amazing conversation. I remember when I first came out of his talk a few months ago now, I felt that I'd come away with a much stronger understanding of how the world works and so many different ideas and questions and, and thoughts of how we could start to do things differently. Did you find similarly that it kind of turned upside down a lot of your preconceptions and perceptions of what we need to do? Yeah, I think the the stuff we talked about is kind of the theoretical abstract stuff that I love talking about. But I think Simon went into talking about the economy in a way that I haven't heard anyone talk about it before, which is that he pointed out how we see 
the economy as kind of a balanced system and instead we need to completely transform our vision of how we see it to something much more dynamic something that is changing over time and will change i think what i realized was the economic principles that we're using are based on trying to keep the economy as it is and grow at a steady rate and when we're talking about climate change we're talking about accelerating innovation and structural change at a pace that hasn't been seen before towards sustainability. So why on earth would we be keeping the same models? Definitely. And, you know, Simon said that a good starting point for that would be putting more government funding into that kind of research and, and into that kind of thinking. But I wonder if also we need to start teaching economics differently at a university and school level as well. I imagine that, you know, the old school economic paradigms are still being taught as gospel in universities. And, and that may not allow the flexibility of thinking that we need in the coming decades. Yeah, I think I've done an economics module. And I think from what I saw, the, the lecturers, they weren't really proponents of capitalism, but that was the economic system that we're taught. And there's a lack of any alternative models. And I think, I mean, Louisa talked about this, Simon talked about this. It takes less resistance he talked about tipping points and it takes less resistance to be proposing something different rather than just hitting back against the current system. I mean, I see it that Simon posed a, a very different approach to Louisa in that Louisa, as we actually very explicitly spoke about with her in the last episode, her activism very much focuses on trying to shut down the supply of fossil fuels, working on the supply side of things. Whereas Simon, as you said, he thinks we have a point of greater leverage and it would be smarter perhaps to act on the demand side where we can work with those positive reinforcing feedback loops rather than against that balancing feedback that Louisa describes with the concept of facility, of that huge dominance that that fossil fuel incumbent industry has in all different aspects of society. And I think that's a really interesting point to talk about, which kind of activism is is more tactical or whether we need both. I think one thing that was really interesting was that earlier this year, reports said that fossil fuel demand in the electricity sector may have now peaked and it might be in free fall by the end of the decade, largely driven by the fact that solar and wind power are beginning to race up that exponential curve that they're playing into those positive feedbacks and they're being installed at such a fast rate. Yeah, I found what he said about the upward curve getting faster and faster so hopeful and suggest that perhaps, although models look like we're not going to reach climate targets, we can't exactly predict the trajectories we're on because we don't know what speed that scaling up will look like. Exactly. And it's really interesting because when you look at the models that big institutions like the International Energy Agency and others are doing, they have to constantly revise those models upwards because on a very consistent basis, we're completely outpacing the models. We're doing things far faster than we expect because these models, they've been modeling changes linear. When we know it's not, we know it's exponential now. And that is really exciting. It is really optimistic. And I think what's maybe even more exciting is the fact that you get cascades in natural systems, which can be a bad thing in climate systems, but you can also get cascades in the economic system that could be really beneficial, like a kind of a mega feedback system. So I think an example that Simon gives is that investment in electric vehicles, that improves battery storage technology, which is being developed for those cars. But then that battery storage technology is also really important for the power sector, for electricity, for the grid, which will need to rely on, on, on more electricity storage. 
And then speeding that power grid transition, that can help decarbonize other sectors, which will increasingly rely on electrification. And then if you develop zero emission hydrogen, that can be used for fertilizer production. But as that becomes cheaper, it can be used to help decarbonize trucks and shipping and and heavy industry. So these things all play into each other. And I think what we'll see is very quickly through just just market forces and investments and, and hopefully really smart kind of nudging in the right direction by governments, this whole transition will gather momentum. I think something interesting, which Simon touched on a lot, is that we need a complete change in diplomacy and how governments act at conferences like COP. And one example he gave, not in our interview, but that I read about in his work, was some of the integrated assessment models used to generate scenarios for global emissions reductions assume something called marginal costs of abatement. And it means that at a moment, even, for example, if it's cheaper in Africa, to decarbonize the power sector, then to decarbonize heavy industry in Europe, the model will propose that. So we have models which are short term. We have models which aren't actually leading us towards the transition that Simon says we need and that we know that we need. I think his idea of reforming climate negotiations, having them centered around small groups of countries that are focused on particular sectors is a really smart idea. If we eliminate the unnecessary actors, focus around very proactive, immediate action-oriented decisions, that could be really, really a game changer. And I think this was something that Simon and actually the UK government kind of trialed out at COP26. They had the main negotiations, but they also had a number of side decisions and pacts on topics like coal and methane and, and deforestation. And I think when you and I were there, we didn't really have a very clear conception of what those were about and what was happening behind the scenes. I kind of saw them as a bit of a distraction from the main important tasks of, of setting new NDCs, new, new national targets for 2030, and the main parts of the agreement. Actually, after having read Simon's book, those strike me as potentially really important negotiations that happened and something that we need to maybe make the focus of these kinds of summits. Yeah, I think what we've learned from speaking to so many people in different industries is that there's no grand plan. We need a plan for different sectors, different industries. So I, yeah, I think you're right. I think at the next COP, we'll be able to witness what's happening with a bit more understanding that sector-specific actions are just as or even more important than these large targets, which people tend to focus on. Having said that, though, I still do think that the the current system of setting big economy-wide targets is useful. And I wonder if the two are not necessarily incompatible with each other or mutually exclusive, but could sit side by side. And the reason I say that is because if we set these targets for 2030, 2040, 2050, for whatever date, I think where, where this Paris Agreement has been really useful so far is in setting that longer term trajectory that gives all the actors in society a compass direction for where we need to go. It gives businesses the confidence to make investments in that transition when they might not otherwise. I think that's really important. And also, as we explored in one of our earlier episodes, these kind of concepts of international target setting and target setting on a national basis could be really important for accountability and for using the law and civil society to put pressure on governments to, to be on track. I think we need those big targets to know we're on track and to keep us on track, even if we need 
to be more action oriented to make the progress itself. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I've always been a bit hesitant of large targets because I think countries want to have their independence, their sovereignty. We're not going to be able to overcome that. And also lots of these targets aren't legally binding and they are opt-in based. But I think, yeah, as you said, they're they're good also to point us in the right direction so that people can sit there and have discussions about it. One last point, which is that Simon's talking about all these changes, and I think it's going to be really useful um, as a paradigm shift that can help us accelerate decarbonisation. But I think it's also worth thinking about the scope of what Simon's talking about in terms of economics, at least, is mainly limited to technological transitions, as I understand it. He's, he's looking at how market forces can be best exploited you know, through state interventions and smart policymaking and good activism to get a clean technology substituted for a dirtier technology. And that's that's really important. That's a lot of what we need to do. It's substituting renewables for fossil fuels. It's substituting green steel for conventional steel, electric vehicles for internal combustion engines, that kind of thing. But that's not all of what we need to do. We need to do other stuff as well. And I think, you know, the electric vehicles are a good example of this. It's really important that we substitute out petrol vehicles for electric vehicles. But if we were to make a one-for-one substitution of every petrol car that we have right now, every internal combustion engine for an electric vehicle, that's not going to deal with the whole problem. It's not going to deal with the air pollution because more than half of the air pollution uh, of cars comes from tire wear and from brake dust. It's there's still a, a heavy climate impact of electric vehicles. You've got the mining impacts as well, which is associated with deforestation and human rights abuses. So what we need to do is not just do these technological substitutions, but but for electric vehicles, we also need to improve public mobility, you know, car sharing schemes and public transport infrastructure, change the way that people work, change lifestyles, you know. There are a lot of decisions to be made that aren't simple technological substitutions that don't rely on market forces and they will have to be achieved in different ways that I don't think will be able to play into these same feedback loops that Simon spoke about. Yeah, I agree. I think some of the concepts that Simon talks about, though, can feed into discussions which can help people understand the changes needed at individual community-based levels. And I think reading his book could be number one for people to go away and do. We're not anyone's promotion exercise, but his book's great and you should all buy it and read it because it is fantastic. And yeah, and I think Simon shared some really good advice for a general way to approach your activism, which kind of ties into what we've said in previous episodes, but it's about thinking about where your leverage is. It's thinking about your professional position, your your social connections, the skills you have, where you have the most influence and what levers of change you're good at operating yourself. I think just in terms of shifting how we think about change, we're talking about shifting our perception of economic change from one that's more static and balanced to something more dynamic. You can think about how your actions not only make you know individual standalone contributions to the problem, but how those might fit into the wider feedback loops. For example, if you work for a business, you could think about working together with other businesses in your sector to um, achieve, you know, coordination gains that might play into these feedback loops. There are so many ways of working together to accelerate change through coordinated action. And 
just a bit of a shout out to um something that we haven't mentioned yet but it needs to be snuck into this episode somehow is the the high level climate champions 2030 breakthrough agenda which is all about that it's about bringing together stakeholders from business and governments and cities to look at a number of key breakthroughs that we need to make in different sectors to cross these tipping points so check them out well i don't know about you bella i think that's about all that i had to say so you might this time we might let our listeners off the hook with uh a relatively short debrief. A short debrief, but a lot to think about. Yes. So, well, firstly, we just want to say thank you again, everybody, for um, listening in. It's always appreciated. And actually, in the last week, I've been visiting people back at university, found that a lot of people are listening, um, which has been really sweet. If you are someone that's listening and you want to support us, it would be really appreciated if you could share the episode If you're on Spotify, leave us a five-star review. If you're on Apple, what's even better is to leave us a five-star review and a comment in words, because that can do a lot to boost a podcast rankings. And if you really, really want to support us, you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com. And links to this and our social media, all in the show notes. But yes, Bella, do you want to tell us who next week's guest is? Next week on Here's the Plan, we talk to Timothy Parikh, a researcher at Lund University in Sweden. He's also an author and has published a book called Slow Down or Perish, The Economics of Degrowth. While Simon here has presented some fantastic ways to achieve rapid wins within the current system, Timothy is convinced that we cannot rescue ourselves without a major economic paradigm shift away from a society centered around growth. So it's another fascinating big picture episode that really gets to the roots of our problems and explores whether the solutions pushed by even some of the most influential international bodies set up to deal with environmental issues will be sufficient. So I'm looking forward to it and I hope you're looking forward to it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.